Hey, Mike. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Hey, well, good to meet finally, uh, even if it's only on Zoom. Yeah, it's uh, it's been like a month now. I've been talking to you back and forth about finally getting you on here. So uh, a lot has happened since then, especially in, uh, in terms of Bitcoin's price. So uh, I guess I guess we can start off with, you know, what are your current thoughts on where we are in the market right now? Um, maybe kind of the, um, you know, your, your timeline of maybe the last couple months and, and leading up to where you think we're headed maybe in the next, you know, couple months as, as we head into Q4. Sure. Well, listen, I don't spend a lot of time on, on price forecasts, right? I'm not a forecaster. I'm not a technical analyst. Um, you know, what I've done historically is work with larger institutions. So I started a company called Brightscope in 2008 and, uh, you know, built that up to a little over 10 million in revenue. Almost all that revenue came from about 30 large asset managers, including BlackRock and Fidelity and T. Rowe and Vanguard, Schwab, et cetera. Um, so built very senior level relationships uh, across the traditional asset management world. And so then when I built uh, like a mini Bloomberg at Digital Assets Data and then sold it to Nidig, I spent about eight months doing strategy and M&A for them. And so I got to see the institutional business being built at scale uh, in the kind of Bitcoin and crypto uh, marketplace. And so a lot of my insights come from direct interactions with senior executives, decision makers, portfolio managers, you know, our clients at Digital Assets Data were a lot of the large crypto hedge funds. So Polychain and Pantera, Paradigm and uh, high frequency trading uh, funds and market makers like Jump and CMT. So had really good visibility into kind of how everybody's thinking about the market. Um, it feels very early to me, right? I've been saying this for a while. I know for a fact there were a lot of institutions uh, buying Bitcoin over the summer. Um, it takes a while, as you know, for that to filter through for price. Uh, you know, people have a very short attention span in Bitcoin uh, for some reason, even shorter than equities uh, and bonds. You know, people in general, their attention spans have been getting shorter. And in, in the investment business, they've been getting even shorter. And so you see people on Twitter saying, hey, I've heard positive things about what's going to happen. How come Bitcoin didn't go up yesterday? Uh, you know, you see it every day right now with people saying, hey, Hut went up or down or Marathon went up or down. And I'm like, guys, it's one day. Um, but I think what's happening under the surface is a large amount of Bitcoin is being essentially taken off uh, the market in a long-term manner by serious long-term institutional investors, uh, firms like insurance companies, large ones like Mass Mutual, which, you know, Nighting has publicly announced, bought their first hundred million uh, earlier this year, also took uh, an equity stake in the firm. Um, there are others, right? There are other firms like that. These are firms that you know, when they put Bitcoin on their general account, they're not buying it to trade it, right? They're buying it because they think they may hold it for 30, 40, 50 years. They may hold it to pay off uh, policy policyholder liabilities decades from now. And so while it takes a long time to get a firm like Mass Mutual to say yes to Bitcoin, once they make a commitment to it, they tend to commit to it for a very long period. Uh, and so I think that's what's happening, right? That these firms take a long time to make decisions. They make their initial allocation. They get comfortable with it. The market validates uh, that they were right. They buy more. They look smart. They buy more, and it's sort of like a cascade uh, from there. And so, obviously, there's a lot of uh, derivatives activity. There are a lot of traders. There's a lot of hedging going on on trading desks that, in the short term, make it seem like the accumulation isn't happening if you're just looking at price. But if you're looking at the real market structure underneath the surface, I would say I've never been more bullish. I think we're at the beginning of this kind of next leg up that's going to take us up to. 70, 80K this fall, almost uh, certainly just looking at how much uh, money's coming into the space from institutions. And the fact that, as you've pointed out many times, the plebs have not stopped, right? The, the plebs are still stacking Bitcoin every day, every week, every month. And now they're being joined increasingly by these larger institutions that have a much 
uh, larger mandate uh, and a longer time frame, even than many of the plebs, although they'll disagree with me on that. Uh, most people do not have a longer time horizon than Mass Mutual. Um, so I think we're going to go higher uh, this fall. I think that run higher could go into next year, could even go to Q2, Q3 before a larger pullback. Um, you know, if I if I had long-term capital deploy, I wouldn't be waiting. I wouldn't be dollar cost averaging. I'd just be uh, deploying it in a lump sum right now because I think the odds of higher prices in the next three to six months is, is very high. You know, one thing that was that was really cool over the summer was when, when you and I met and we kind of had this synergy between, I mean, we, we hit it off in, you know, relationship aspect, but also in the sense that you, you were talking about all this anecdotal evidence that, that you were seeing and hearing day in and day out about the institutions are getting involved. You know, these are, th this is smart money where they're, they're going to be buying when everyone else is absolutely terrified to step into the market. And then likewise, you know, they were probably hedging and, and de-risking in that 50, 60 K kind of distribution range as well. The active managers were. So it's very interesting to see you, you know, saying anecdotally that, yeah, the institutions are getting in. And then in the data, I was seeing that as well. And, and I think me and you, me and you had this week or, or too long, uh, you know, little, little area there where me, you and I knew price was going to shoot off off that floor um, because you were seeing exactly what you were saying reflected in that on-chain data. You saw whales buying. Um, we also talk about, you know, you're saying these these guys are coming in with a long time horizon. Um, we were seeing all these long-term, you know, when we look at different uh, measures of, of long-term investors, right? You were seeing all those ticking up as well, all these different measures of accumulation. So that, that was really interesting to see over the summer. And, um, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I think we're getting ready to have an exciting remainder of the year heading into the, the beginning of next year. For the audience, I, I probably should have started with this. Can we just back up and, and give kind of a, a background on you, how you got into investing, uh, how you got into Bitcoin and all that kind of high level thing? Sure. Yeah, actually, I started right around uh, you know your age now. Um, so I sold Cutco Knives uh, after my senior year of high school. I made like $14,000 in seven weeks. I was a pretty good uh, referral sales guy uh, selling Mrs. Jones, you know, $800 uh, cutlery sets and then getting referrals to 10 of her friends. Uh, but I was smart. I put it all in the, an E-Trade account in the late 90s, and I started trading uh, tech stocks and penny stocks from my Stanford dorm room. So I got really uh, tactile investment and trading uh, you know, experience with my own capital, right? Learned what it feels like to make a lot of money, like seemingly overnight, learned what it meant like to, to, to you know, what it felt like to, to lose a lot of money very quickly. Both actually excellent experiences. I, I would say losing money is actually more important. Uh, early in your investing career because you'll never develop like a solid risk management framework and some more conservative thinking around how to protect your capital without sustaining some losses, hopefully smaller, non-catastrophic losses. Although every great trader will tell you that they've blown up, you know, one account at one point in the past. Um, so it's not unheard of for, for even really great traders and investors to have issues at the beginning. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I learned about investing the old fashioned way. Uh, after college, I graduated from Stanford. I briefly was an uh, investment advisor. I managed money for uh, wealthy people. And then I came up with the idea uh, with my brother, Ryan, to score uh, every retirement plan in the United States. So at that time in 2008, there was no easy way to figure out how good your retirement plan was. So if you worked at Amgen or Microsoft or T. Rowe Price or Fidelity or uh, you know, uh, you go down the list of any large American company, Chevron, ExxonMobil at the time, um, there was no way to figure out if you were in the 401k plan, whether the funds were good, whether the fees were high or low. So we went to the U.S. government uh, Department of Labor office, uh, you know, got on a plane, flew there, walked in, 
and uh, convinced the guy sitting behind the desk. His name was Devon Lowry. I still remember his name because he was so critical to the building of this business. And we got him to give us data that was technically public available, but he freely admitted no one had ever asked for her or had left the office with before. And it was the audited financial statements of every plan in America. So like we could see in Google's 401k plan, there was 325 million in the Vanguard uh, S&P 500 fund and 200 million in the BlackRock small cap value fund. And so we built up a model of like basically where all the funds were in the marketplace, right? How high the fees were across blended across these uh, these plans. And we created a Morningstar rating and we published that on the internet. And so that, that was probably the most successful and interesting thing that I did in sort of the entrepreneurial uh, avenue, but I've always wanted to be a full-time investor. So of course, you know, six, seven years ago, I started doing more private investing. I, I helped recap a bakery with a few other guys. We, we recapped the whole company. We, we changed out management. Uh, we, we took the business from EBITDA negative to EBITDA positive. Uh, I think it eventually will be a, a pretty profitable investment when we exit. I'm on the board there. I was named chairman, you know, a, a year ago. Um, I've also done some public corporate governance work. So last summer, I partnered with my buddy Rory at Outerbridge Capital, and we filed a 13D for Barnes and Noble Education. Uh, collectively, we own 13.5% of the stock. Uh, we asked for four board seats. I was on the four-member board slate we proposed. We ended up not doing a full proxy campaign. We settled. Uh, with the company and we we got two independent board seats uh the stock was at a dollar 50 when that 13d was filed at the end of june last year today i think it's 1150 or 1175 so extremely successful activist campaign so i've had a very varied career because i've done corporate activism on small cap companies right i've done early stage investing uh you know seed stage investing i've done turnarounds uh turnaround private equity um, and i'm probably going to start an ultra long duration fund called alpine fox uh, next year, which initially will mostly be my own capital. Uh, but I will raise a little bit of money from LPs just because when you're doing these 13D campaigns, you need a little bit more firepower uh, to get the companies to pay attention to you. Um, so I, I guess I'm, you can call me a recovering entrepreneur, right? I had 10 plus years as CEO in multiple contexts. I now like to work with CEOs like Chris King at Eagle Brook Advisors. Chris King is crushing it. He's you know, 26, 27 years old. His company's growing like a weed. Uh, right now, I was the first $50,000 check into the company. I've sent, subsequently invested more into that company. I'm, I was the first board member. Um, and as he raises his Series A here and continues to scale the company, I'll be there as sort of wise counsel, right? It's Chris's company. He makes all the uh, underlying decisions, right? All the final decisions on everything. Uh, but it's fun to be able to be in the room uh, with him when those decisions are being made, but not have to get on the airplane to go see all the customers and not have to take the calls from the head of HR, the, the, the CFO or the head of sales when you lose a customer and you got to fly out to Cleveland to save them. You know, So uh, kudos to the folks uh, like you, Will, between sort of 19 and, and 35 who, who still have the stamina. And obviously there are people that are older than that, but I hit my wall as a CEO and I decided I want to focus full-time on investing. Uh, and Bitcoin is my largest uh, single position uh, in size. And so that's why I spend so much time on it. I think it's the most important investment idea uh, in my entire career of 22 plus years now, uh, investing in equities and, and other businesses, uh, private and public. And so, you know, I'm spending a ton of time just thinking about Bitcoin and engaging with the Bitcoin community. That's amazing. What are some of the biggest, um, I guess, mistakes that you made along the way, especially when you were younger? You know, I think I have a lot of uh, younger listeners that, that follow some of my content and also just me personally, I'd like to know, what are, what are, you know, some of the, the wisdom bombs that you can drop for us? Uh, well, there's so many. Well, I mean, like the only way to become a great investor or even a good investor is to make mistakes. 
right? So like doing, um, you know, doing index fund investing in an asset allocation portfolio, that's fine. If you have $5 million and you have an advisor, you want to pay 1% to do that. But in my view, that's not really investing, right? Like investing is actually making a decision uh, about a company, right? Uh, uh, and whether you think it's uh, undervalued or overvalued. And so like, if you want to be a, a, a Warren Buffett style value investor, right? Like you have to learn how to evaluate companies. And what I see a lot of people doing today is just FOMOing in or aping into things just because they're going up or because somebody talked about it on a message board. And we should be very clear about what that is. That's speculation. That's not, that's not actual investing. And yes, when money is this cheap and it's free flowing and liquidity is everywhere, there will be people who make money uh, YOLOing into to calls and puts and, you know, GameStop and AMC and SPACs and Dogecoin and all that. But invariably at the end of a cycle, which we haven't seen, right? Like if you're 19 or 25 or even 30 years old, it's probable that you've never actually seen a full market cycle because the Fed is literally not allowing market cycles anymore. They're printing so much money and holding interest rates down at these artificially low levels where the monetary system is completely disconnected from physical reality. That's why we're having all these supply chain issues. So I think the mistake a lot of people are going to make in this type of environment is assuming that this environment goes on forever. So they're going to keep YOLOing into calls and they're going to keep YOLOing into GameStop uh, and without understanding what any of these things actually mean, what, what the fundamental value is. And so I always counsel people actually learn how to invest, actually learn how to do fundamental analysis, actually learn what these companies do, what the right price is to pay for their shares, actually figure out uh, you know, what price you would be selling at. And if you can't answer all of those questions, then just be honest with yourself that you're speculating. And so the, the forms of speculation where I've lost money before are things like using margin, right? To put on a $500,000 position when I only have a hundred thousand of liquidity, right? So, because I'm chasing losses because, you know, and I used to do this 10, 15 years ago, I used to do this a lot, right? I'd feel like I needed to catch up, um, you know, the gambler's uh, fallacy and chasing losses, right? And so I, I thought I could catch up by, by sizing up. And of course, even if I was right fundamentally about the position, I never had enough time because it would invariably, when you take a very large position, it goes against you initially, right? It's just like the laws of the universe. Like if you go to put on a large, your largest position ever today, it's going to go down. Um, and so, you, you know, make sure that whatever your position sizing is, that it doesn't force you to liquidate it before it goes up eventually. Um, you know, that's happened to me 20 times in my career. So don't, you don't use too much leverage. Don't use margin. If you don't have to don't oversize positions, understand fundamental analysis. I mean, those are some pieces of advice that I would give based on the mistakes that I've made in the past. Got it. You know, I think you have this interesting background or, or unique background um, in kind of the Bitcoin world that you and, and the only other guy I can think of off the top of my head is, is Preston Pish. And I guess you could kind of throw Lynn Alden in there as well in the sense that you come up from a value investing background. Um, how, how have you been able to make that transition? I think you have to have like a lot of um, mental agility to kind of be able to make that shift. And then also, I'm curious, how, how have the value investing folks reacted to your position in, in Bitcoin? Like I've talked to Preston before. And he said that, uh, you know, like a lot of a lot of his, um, you know, he has this very organic grassroots following on, on his podcast of, of value investors. And a lot of them were giving him some backlash when he initially started doing his, his weekly uh, Bitcoin episode. But um, I'm, I'm curious how, you know, what, what your experience there is. Yeah, you know, um, the reality is like I wasn't deeply connected with the traditional value community anyway right before getting into bitcoin so while i am a value oriented investor i didn't hang out uh, on value investor forums or 
with bogle heads and things, people like that, right? Like that's never been interesting to me. You know, a lot of value investors don't do early stage investing. They don't understand technology. Remember I started two software companies. So while I have a value orientation, I'm not afraid of new things and I'm not afraid of technology. And I actually think going forward, if you look out 10 or 20 years, it's going to be very hard for most companies to stay in business if uh, they don't uh, have a strong technology orientation to them. So essentially, if you are not a technology company, you're not a company in 20 years, potentially, right? As, as all of these technology curves accelerate, um, I think that's going to be increasingly true. So I think a value investor, even a value-oriented investor in the modern world has to be open to new ideas, has to be able to model things like networks, things like Facebook, things like Bitcoin, right? They have to be able to think outside of the box um, because a portfolio of railroad stocks and tobacco stocks you, you know, may underperform. Uh, quite substantially relative to things that have uh, true underlying uh, growth, right? That have growth as a tailwind, that have exponential properties. Um, and so, you know, like there's plenty of examples of, of people like this. Lynn Alden's a good example. She's got a strong uh, value orientation. We've spent a lot of time comparing notes on positions. We're long a lot of the same things. Uh, we tend to gravitate towards things that we uh, have a, a, a strong margin of safety, right? High mode around the business. Um, and so we're in a whole bunch of stuff that is out of favor, right? T typically, these types of people have contrarian bents. Um, you know, there's other big name investors like Bill Miller, who is a traditional value investor who owns both banks and Bitcoin, like me uh, in the past, right? I don't own as many banks as I used to, but I still own a little bit of, uh, of sort of financial services exposure and Bitcoin at the same time. I think it's a, a reasonable bet to make. Other people that work for Bill Miller, like Samantha McLemore, um, I'm forgetting the name of her fund, but she also has Bitcoin as a large position. Um, so, so I think the value-oriented investor in the future is not necessarily somebody who eschews technology or avoids anything with a PE over 20 or 15, right? It's more that you take a value-oriented framework. So like, I would not be a buyer of Zoom, you know, at 100 times sales, right? Or Snowflake at 100 times sales or whatever. Um, but I might be a buyer of some of these companies if they get down to 20 or 30 times earnings, Right, and so there's a big difference in my mind between Zoom at 100 times sales and Alibaba at 20 times earnings. Um, so you know, look, it's a it's a brave new world. Uh, value investors uh, aren't going away. Um, this value orientation framework that I have is going to come back in style. Right, there'll be a point in the next five or ten years where people will be laughing at uh, you know growth investors who went all in on growth stocks when they were clearly way overvalued. This is the cycle of life in markets. Once you've been around for 20 years and you've seen it a couple of times, you're no longer surprised. Like I'll give you a good example, energy stocks. Since 2014, you literally couldn't make money. And energy stocks, I'm thinking of a couple of companies in particular, a couple of natural gas producers. One's called Range Resources, the ticker's RRC. Another one's called Antero, the ticker's AR. Those stocks traded at 20, 30, $40 a share at one point last February, March, they were trading at like a dollar and, and Tara went to like 60, 70 cents, right? Range went to like two under $2, maybe closer to a dollar. Today, they're both trading over $20 a share. Um, so in 18 months, you made 20 X your capital. And this is par for the course. The thing that everybody hates eventually will be loved again. And the thing that everybody loves today eventually will be hated again. Um, and so people, again, who haven't lived through a full cycle won't recognize those cycles as clearly, but I think the value oriented, value oriented framework that I use is actually really helpful for picking out some of those inflection points. And so again, doesn't pr preclude me from owning tech stocks. I own Amazon, right? I own Alibaba. I own tech oriented things like Bitcoin. Um, but I also own CVS and Bristol Myers Squibb and grocery stores and et cetera. I think, uh, an intelligent portfolio for the future has both ideas reflected. Got it. 
what exactly is your personal Bitcoin thesis? I guess, you know, you'll probably have a lot to say there. So if you want to keep it more high level, feel free. And then also uh, as a kind of a follow-up question, what are some of the biggest limitations um, to institutions getting involved in Bitcoin? I think you're more, you know, connected than almost anybody that I know in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, when you're talking to some of these big firms, what are what are some of the roadblocks that you know are, are in the way for them getting involved? Like, is it is it like a regulatory thing? Um, is it you know they're actually skeptical about the the Bitcoin protocol itself? Uh, and what are some of like the 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 ways of speaking or or tools that you use to kind of help guide them through that? Well, let's start with the second one first, right? Because okay. I think. Um... It's an interesting question, right? Like three or four years ago, you probably would have said custodians, right? So that was basically the genesis story of NIDIC, right? If you talk to the founders there and they tell the story publicly a lot, but they were looking for at Stone Ridge, their own uh, high level, high grade institutional quality custodian, and they didn't see it in the marketplace in like 2016, right? So that's changed now. I think most people agree there's multiple custodial uh, offerings that are pretty high quality, right? Uh, up until a couple of years ago, there were no large publicly traded Bitcoin related companies, right, in the market. So now you got Coinbase, now you got Marathon, now you got HUT and many others coming public soon, uh, like Circle and Core Scientific. And there's going to be hundreds uh, behind them, right, over the next decade. And so some of it is just these institutional investors need to see signs of institutionalization. They need to see signs that other investors sort of believe it's real because for a long time it was just viewed as this fascinating. Uh, tulip bulb, right? That went up and down a lot and nobody really understood it fully. And, you know, blockchain, not Bitcoin was popular for a while. Um, so the narrative has to change, uh, but the narrative changes based on facts on the ground. So facts on the ground being things like, can I get an institutional custodian, right? Do I see publicly traded Bitcoin related companies trading and seemingly doing well, right? Um, can I get my auditor to sign off, uh, you know, on my Bitcoin holdings, right? Um, when I talk to my investors, my end customers or my investors, are they interested? So a lot of the large banks, they're interested when their hedge fund clients are interested. But guess what? Their hedge fund clients are interested when Bitcoin goes up. And so to some degree, it, we laugh about it in the non-institutional community, us sort of retail plebs on Twitter. But the number go up technology is absolutely critical for institutional adoption, just like it is with retail. right? And, and in fact, in a way, it's even more important. Um, because a lot of these folks have more to lose, right? Because their entire livelihood is tied up in these companies. They make a million dollars or $2 million or $3 million a year, supports a, a lifestyle for themselves and their families, and it's going to lead to a good retirement. Why would they choose to take on something like Bitcoin that looks risky from the outside if there's career risks that they might lose their jobs? And so some of what you're seeing is actually just as the number goes up, uh, it de-risks Bitcoin for everybody. And, and so all of a sudden, they are more likely to lose their jobs if they don't adopt Bitcoin, right, than they are if, if they didn't adopt it. And that flips very quickly in the, on the institutional side. I think we're going to see that in boardrooms, right? I think companies that adopt Bitcoin as a balance sheet asset, as a treasury reserve asset, are actually going to start outperforming pretty materially companies that sit in fiat because the market's going to start correctly pricing in the growth in their balance sheet, which becomes inevitable when you own this asset that has a 30, 40, 50, 100% CAGR uh, over five or 10 years. Right? We're just at the very beginning of seeing uh, what that looks like. So I think I think what uh, the short answer is the barriers to institutional adoption are evolving. It used to be very kind of technical things. Now it's more just reputation and narrative. Um, things like Elon Musk blowing himself up in the spring and looking like a doofus uh, do slow down adoption temporarily. It basically sets back 
inevitable adoption by a quarter, maybe two quarters, but but the curve then just gets steeper, right? Because there was pent up demand before. Once people start FOMOing in, you see the price go to 55, all of a sudden, guess what? Uh, all these institutional firms like Coinbase got 20 calls yesterday or hundred calls yesterday from people just based on the price action alone. Um, so that's the institutional side. Uh, my thesis for Bitcoin is is pretty simple. I think it's the best money in human history. When you look at every dimension of what makes money, money, um, if you do the work on that and you're actually put in the hundreds of hours that you need to, to, to understand money in context, I don't think there's any better money. And I think that's very clear um, as it relates to the investability of the asset. Like I think it could be uh, one of the best investments in human history because it has unlimited TAM. In my view, it essentially could subsume the vast majority of the world's liquid and illiquid assets in the long run. They could be denominated in, in Bitcoin. I think eventually Bitcoin becomes a unit of account for the world. Part of my thinking on that revolves around papers like Lynn Alden wrote about the breaking down in the Bretton Woods uh, monetary agreement globally, which essentially made the US dollar the global reserve currency. I see that breaking down. You can see all the cracks uh, everywhere. You know, at the time of Bretton Woods, I think the U.S. was 36% of global GDP. Um, at, at today, it's like under 20% and falling. Um, the U.S. literally can't support our economy is not big enough to support the petrodollar uh, system. That system will eventually collapse upon itself. Uh, hopefully, that collapse will be in slow motion, so enough people have a chance to denominate more of their assets in Bitcoin and other hard assets um, that that won't be debased and that won't be destroyed. Uh, at the same rate as the US dollar. Um, but uh, if you agree with any of those things, then at the very least, you need to have a 1% allocation because even if you're even if you're wrong about it, well, 1% allocation is not going to hurt your portfolio, but not having a, having a 0% allocation is going to ensure that you uh, fall behind uh, you know, everybody else that, that owns Bitcoin and that your purchasing power will go down and your, your sort of standard of living will go down relative to somebody else who owns Bitcoin. Um, so my my thinking around that allocation used to be one to five percent. I'm closer to twenty percent now. My mother, my father-in-law, and my aunt, all of whom have retired, and who rely on me informally for basically portfolio advice. Uh, in reality, essentially every position in their portfolio I've sort of selected for them, uh, with some variance around how they want to be exposed to different things. But in all cases, they have somewhere around twenty percent uh, Bitcoin exposure. And then 80% value equities with the dividend, the, the dividends, what pays their bills, right? They pay their fiat bills using the dividends that get paid by companies like Pepsi and CVS and, and Merck and Enterprise Partners and Altria, right? Sort of 3% to 8% yielders combined with Bitcoin, I think as a portfolio strategy for a retired person, if they can get up to 20% of Bitcoin and hold it for five or 10 years, I think they're going to crush the average 60-40 you know, retirement portfolio. Got it. What What are your thoughts on the uh, Bitcoin related equities and kind of alternative ways to get exposure to Bitcoin aside from owning the asset itself? Like if I was going to talk to, uh, you know, my grandma, for example, I'm not going to tell her to, to, you know, get a cold card and, and hold her own keys. Yeah. So I mean, for, first and foremost, I think everybody should own a core Bitcoin holding that's Bitcoin. Uh, I, I agree with Udiverse a bit that for most newbies, especially if they're over 60 or even over 70, uh, it, you're right. I don't think holding um, Bitcoin in cold storage is necessarily the best solution. They may even forget where their keys are, right? They could put their, they could shard their key and, and move it around three bank deposit boxes and literally forget, uh, you know, what their, what their uh, uh, setup is. 
And so I, I don't think that most people need to do that. Most people can choose from any of the kind of top five or 10 US domiciled regulated custodians, and that's probably going to be safe. I would stick with one of the custodians that does not have a large lending business, right? Because that's how a lot of these firms uh, get in trouble um, doing uh, poor uh, risk management on their on their lending and borrowing and rehypothecation uh, businesses. So, uh, but most of the large ones that I typically recommend don't do that. So if they're regulated in the US um, and particularly if uh, increasingly as they're publicly traded, so you can see their balance sheets every every month or every quarter, um, I think the risk is, is, is pretty low. Um, so that's how I recommend people come in as it relates to equities. Um, you, you know, look, I, I don't think you can hurt yourself too bad owning Bitcoin miners, as long as you buy them at a reasonable price. I think right now is around a reasonable price uh, for most of these guys, because the ones that I believe will survive one or two cycles like HUT um, are, are trading at a very low valuation relative to what the, just the value of their balance sheet is likely to be over the next four, six, eight years. Um, I also like Coinbase on the record with this. I know a lot of Bitcoin maximalists uh, don't like uh, Coinbase for their political stances, for their supporting uh, shitcoin casino, as they would call it. I don't really view it that way, right? I think Bitcoin is the only asset in my mind that's proven that it's going to be around for 100 years. Um, but I don't believe that it'll be the only one. I think there, are, it's possible one or two of the other existing assets could still be around in 100 years too. And if they are, they'll also be worth substantially more than they are today. I don't advise people, right? Like my mom doesn't own Ethereum. She doesn't own Solana, right? She doesn't own Compound or Maker. She doesn't own anything else other than Bitcoin and value equities. Um, but she can use Coinbase, right? She can she can use Coinbase uh, cold custody to custody her Bitcoin without any risk of anything else because she's not going, she's not interested in anything else. The only thing that she's interested in is Bitcoin. Um, and so I think Coinbase has a great business. Um, they're going to expand in a lot of different areas that most people don't understand yet. Um, they're trading slightly uh, on a price to sales basis, slightly lower than NASDAQ and ICE, depending on how you kind of model earnings uh, and sales. And so I think, I, I think it's a pretty safe bet to buy Coinbase under $250. Like I think eventually it's a two or $5,000 stock uh, in 10 or 15 years from now. Got it. And I, I want to kind of pivot this to, uh, this is what I was going to ask before, but I completely forgot what I was going to say. I want to pivot this to like a bit more philosophical thing. When we were talking about, you know, uh, you know, your whole Bitcoin thesis, what are some of the inflection points when we think of like hyper-Bitcoinization, right? That's like a, mm -hmm. the term Bitcoiners love to talk about. What are some of those key milestones that you think kind of accelerate the momentum of adoption? Like, for example, for me, you know, one of the first things I think of is like, basically what you were saying about um, other other firms having to be compared to Bitcoin as a benchmark, right? Once, once you know, they have a basket of, of stocks or, or, you know, index funds that they're being compared to and Bitcoin is thrown into that, if it's even two, 3%, um, you know, over five, 10 years, they're going to dramatically underperform what they're being uh, measured up against. And then the other one that that's probably the most obvious is just El Salvador. And, and you know, the, the idea that that's kind of the first domino to fall in terms of like nation state adoption. So um, do you have any key milestones? And if so, what are those? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit on one big one. I mean, El Salvador, adopting Bitcoin as legal tender is a, is a huge one. And yes, it's a smaller nation. It's a poor nation. It's a nation with a very friendly and cool millennial dictator. Um, but, you know, El Salvador is a great uh, proof point of like what could happen in the future. Like Brazil could come next. There could be other countries that come behind. Um, I'd like to see more uh, countries uh, adopt 
Bitcoin as a treasury asset, right? I'd like to see a few large countries uh, either seize Bitcoin and keep it instead of auctioning it off or just buy Bitcoin in the open market and announce it. I think that would be a critical inflection point. I think coming soon, every bank in America will essentially offer Bitcoin as a native service, right? So kudos to Nidig and others who've pioneered this market, but you know, you'll be able to literally log into your bank account in the next couple of years, no matter which bank you use in the US and there'll be a buy Bitcoin button right there next to your checking account. How much easier will it be for people to access the Bitcoin market when they can do it natively through their existing banking relationship versus needing to go out and set up a new platform and transfer money over and get KYC and wait for the money to show up. And so you know, that's a big one. Just could everybody in the world buy Bitcoin easily in a native way using their existing financial services relationship? Um, there, there are a few others. Another one would be being able to pay your taxes, not just at the state level, like Ohio, I think offered uh, for a bit. I'm not sure if they're still offering that, but being able to pay your federal taxes uh, using Bitcoin would be pretty cool, right? Because that's one of the main things that fiat bros like to talk about uh, for why fiat sustains itself as well. You have to have fiat because you've got to pay taxes, right? Well, uh, if, putting aside the fact that a lot of Bitcoiners don't think you should pay taxes, I do disagree with that view, uh, but it would be good to be able to pay uh, taxes with 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 uh, Bitcoin. Um, so th those are two or three of the biggest ones. I think in terms of timing, you know, Dylan made fun of me, basically called me a boomer. Uh, our friend Dylan, our mutual friend Dylan LeClaire called me a boomer this week. Uh, he listened to my space and I said, hey, I think hyper-Bitcoinization conservatively is like 10 to 15 years out. And then he got on Twitter the next day and blew me up and said, you know, stop being so bearish. Uh, but But I do think realistically, you know, it just takes time, right? It takes a long time for uh, uh, people to get comfortable in governments and in corporate boardrooms, right? And sovereign wealth funds. And you really need to see adoption in all of those channels to, to know you're there. And the unit of account happens when you can basically pay for everything uh, in Bitcoin. And so, you know, another good example that I guess I neglected to mention is like Lightning and Strike and some of these, uh, you know, new integrations like with Twitter, where you can just instantly send somebody money frictionlessly at no cost, right? Using Bitcoin. Like that's a huge uh, step forward for, for Bitcoin as a potential unit of account. And you need to see it, right? Because that's one of the big uh, criticisms that fiat bros have is like, hey, I can still buy my coffee. Uh, putting aside how asinine that point is, um, they're right. You know, most Bitcoiners can't buy their coffee at their local coffee shop, um, nor would they, right? Uh, there, there has to be a point. Hyper-Bitcoinization sort of requires the full monetization of Bitcoin, right? Because why would you start spending Bitcoin when you know the network's still monetizing? So to some degree, if the, if the, if the slope of Bitcoin's appreciation potential is still steep, you actually really can't be the unit of account because even Bitcoiners won't transact using Bitcoin because they, they're going to wait. So I think when that slope of that curve turns down, which I think happens in sort of 2035, right? Like the, if you just follow the internet and, and maybe it's happening faster here so it can be pulled forward. But sometime between 2030 and 2035, the slope of that curve starts to turn down. And when Bitcoin starts appreciating at more like 10% a year or 20% a year, like the S&P, uh, you know, 15% or 12%, then at that point, maybe it makes more sense to spend Bitcoin. And so if all the payment rails are open, if all the governments are accepting it for tax payments, if every bank allows you to buy and sell using their interface and the price is not appreciating at a rapid pace, then I think you could see hyper-Bitcoinization. So D Dylan may be right. He may be wrong. I like to be more conservative. Call me a boomer if you want, but that's my view. Boomer. 
<laughs> what do you what are your thoughts on like the whole four-year cycle thing do you think we continue to see that you know that when you put bitcoin in a log chart you just see these really clean you know kind of cut patterns and we just keep moving up and up and up i've also seen like um you know like this this s-curve chart that that's been circulating twitter now where it's like we continue the the four-year cycles until we just go vertical into like the the main part of the s-curve like uh, how do you kind of think of like the market structure moving forward? Do you, do you think like the volatility gets dampened and we start moving similar to like the S and P as this kind of free floating thing? I think there's still going to be volatility for, for eight, 12, 15 years, right? Because, because the network still needs to, to monetize and there's still a really wide range of potential outcomes. So Bitcoin could still be a zero. It could still be a failure. Although we think that's very unlikely, it could also be 100x or 200x or 300x. And so how many assets in the world in 2021 can you buy that have 100x uh, upside, right? Like I would argue almost none, right? Because if you look at houses, right, houses can go up more if they print more money, but they can't go up 4x or 6x because eventually uh, the demographics uh, just don't support it, right? The people can't actually afford to, to buy them, whereas Bitcoin is sort of untethered from the physical world. Um, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that like the, the four year uh, having cycle sort of like it's physical reality in a sense, right? Because no matter what, uh, miners can only mine 900 Bitcoin a day right now, period, right? Like it's, that's just physical reality. Like you, you can't mine more than that. Even if you have all the hash rate in the world, the total amount you can mine is 900. And, and in two years and eight months, it, it, that goes to 450 a day. And so there is this sort of like, physical governor, right? That like restricts, um, you know, how much Bitcoin can go up or down in, in, in various dimensions. And I think with that in mind, like the cycles are generally going to follow a similar theme because it's a digitally scarce asset. And because a lot of its price increase is based on its relative scarcity to fiat. If you continue to ratchet down the scarcity towards zero, yes, you're, you're going to continue to have these cycles. They can be elongated though. Right? They can be elongated as the price of Bitcoin further decouples from the sort of electricity cost and the cost of mining, which we're already seeing. I mean, this is the golden age of mining profitability. As long as uh, mining is as profitable, I don't see why the Bitcoin's price needs to go uh, down too much because the hash rate is going to go up, and which is a signal to the whole market that this network is getting safer and safer. It's de-risking. It's getting more valuable. Block space is essentially becoming a more and more valuable commodity as that hash rate goes up. So there's just like all these physical, like a, basically laws of physics that I think will dictate a certain type of reality for Bitcoin in terms of what the price can do. But at various points, you know, the cycle could elongate for sure. Um, but at the end of the day, right, like it's probably still going to be a four or five year uh, cycle, four or five, six year cycle uh, at, at, at most, in my opinion. Totally. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, like one, one thing you touched on, I think like, the four-year cycles, if they do continue, is, is going to be like more of a behavioral thing than, than anything. Because, I mean, when you look at the having in terms of the issuance relative to the circulating supply that we're coming up on in, in two and whatever you said, two years and, and eight months, that's pretty impressive. You know that off the top of my head because I don't. Um, but, you know, when you go back to like 2013, the, the having was a much larger impact on the overall market, whereas now, you know, a miners aren't selling their their full 900 coins every day because they have access to the capital markets to cover their operational expenses. Um, and then also, I think like you're going to see the the dominant sell pressure on the market shift to 
a exchange fees. So they, you know, sell a portion of, of the fees that they're taking from every transaction onto the open market. Although, you know, we have seen like Coinbase, for example, say they're going to take 10% of their uh, profit and, and put that into other crypto assets, which was all Bitcoin. Um, and then also, you know, I think that once we get an ETF, um, you'll start to see, you know, let's say they're taking whatever a 2% fee, like Grayscale, I believe they take a 2% fee mm-hmm. um, and that just gets sold onto the open market. So I think over time, those kinds of things are going to eclipse the, the uh, mining sell pressure, which for most of Bitcoin's history was the dominant, um, you know, sell pressure on, on the market. Um, what, what are your thoughts on like the ETF thing? Do you think we, there's a possibility that we get some kind of like futures ETF approved in the next six months at least? Yeah. And just b- back to your last point, like, sure. I totally agree with you on market structure. It's, it's dramatically changed even just in the last four years. So looking at the 2013 having, I think is going to lead to some inconclusive or incorrect, uh, you know, reads on, on what's going on currently. I mean, the, the, the level of derivatives volume today versus four years ago. Right, the number of institutions that are active today, as you alluded to, the miners, right? Like an increasing amount of the newly mined Bitcoin is never going to be sold. It's literally just going to sit on the balance sheets of these industrial scale miners who are driving their cost of capital to zero. Right. And, and so what, one comment I would just make is do not underestimate firms like MicroStrategy, Coinbase, Marathon, HUD, and others who manage to stack large volumes of Bitcoin. You know, people like to make fun of Coinbase because they're sort of late to, to doing this, but the reality is they're still ahead of the whole market. They're ahead of 99.99% of public companies. The, the, the price to borrow against Bitcoin is going to trend towards zero, right? So today it's mid single digits. It used to be 10%. Now it's five, six, 7% for the best borrowers. That's going to go to 1% in the next few years. And so imagine if you have $20 billion of Bitcoin in your balance sheet, your cost of capital is essentially zero. You can build any business you want, or you can just borrow money and buy more Bitcoin. And, and so uh, the market's just totally changed, right? That we're, we are due for a massive uh, su- supply squeeze coming up at some point. If we don't see it in the next couple of quarters, it's coming in the next few years, right? There's going to be a supply squeeze that takes us to levels that, that, that we've never seen before. You know, as it relates to the ETF, like the ETF does enable uh, more demand, right? Because there are a lot of people who... Uh, in the institutional space who would be active in Bitcoin today if the ETF structure enabled them to be. We just heard that from, from US Bank recently, the, the head of their kind of group that, that made the decision to offer Bitcoin. US Bank is the fifth largest US bank. So this is not an insignificant institution, right? They're saying essentially we have a bunch of customers, a bunch of asset managers that want us to custody their Bitcoin on the day the ETF is approved. So like a whole bunch, they have like pre-signed agreements from asset managers who want to get into Bitcoin that are just waiting for the SEC. Um, so I think it does unlock a lot of things. Like there are workarounds. There are people that are managing to be very active in Bitcoin without an ETF that that will continue. Uh, I suspect that a futures-based uh, ETF will be the first ETF approved. I've been on the record for months now um, saying that it will not be this year. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Um, you know, I think by the end of next year, there'll be at least one and, and maybe multiple uh, ETFs approved. And, and if we're lucky, they'll happen in the spring of next year. So we can have a really big kind of Q1, Q2 uh, run. I think, look, I, I think the next few months is extremely bullish. And then I think like February, March, April, May next year, seasonally, it could be very bullish. Um, I totally could see an ETF approval in like March or April of next year, which if, if Bitcoin's at 150K or 200K or whatever, and the EDF is proved, it'll all make sense, right? Like we've talked about, and you, you, you 
presciently tweeted, I think intelligently tweeted the other day that like, it's not always clear whether it's the institutions that are driving the price, the announcements driving the price or the price driving the announcements. That's exactly how I think about it, because I think to some degree, um, the price will go to a certain place and then the announcements will support the price uh, afterwards um, versus the other way around where people are waiting around and tweeting at me every three minutes right now, Mike, when announcements. Um, and I'm like, guys, A, we still have another like six weeks, five, six weeks. And, and B, like clearly there's institutional activity, right? Because all the on-chain data shows that there's there's no real significant change in, in retail activity. If I, if I can just hop in real quick. Like, yeah, go ahead. One thing that, that I've noticed and exactly on that point is like over the last month and a half, we've seen a really large increase in the overall portion of volume that's that's being done by um by large transactions so when you look at like 10 million dollar plus transactions we've just seen that skyrocket as a portion of overall volume over the last month and a half and so that in combination with the whale activity that we've been tracking since like late july um i think like that the, the seeing that increase in volume is is um more evident than anything because you know that's probably showing you're having some like large otc stuff going on yeah, for, for sure. And and we'll know after the fact exactly what happened. The skill is recognizing it as it's happening or in advance. And you, know, you go out on a limb a little bit. Yeah, I went out on a limb. I, I did know for a fact that there were certain people in the market buying because I talked to almost everybody uh, in the space. Um, obviously can't dox any particular companies or names. Uh, but I knew that was happening. So it was a very easy thing to, uh, it's like, I, like I talked about a lot, like if you're the casino and you're the only one who knows the odds, and you've got a bunch of people doing business with you, right. Uh, gambling uh, against you and they don't even know the odds. Like, well, of course I knew the odds that institutions were buying were was very high because I knew for a fact that it was happening. So um, the price will go higher. And then at some point in November, at some point in December, there'll be a whole barrage of announcements um, pretty standard, right? Like, it's, it's predictable. Um, even if you don't have any inside information, it's predictable that that's about to happen. Um, and if it doesn't happen and, and Bitcoin's at 30 K at the end of the year, yes, I would be, you know, I would be concerned. Uh, but I think that's the least likely outcome at this point. Got it. And last topic I want to touch on is, and you've been like blowing up on Twitter over the last maybe two, three months. Um, I remember you had like, maybe five or 6,000 followers when I met you in, in the summer. Uh, I think I met you through Twitter spaces and like the depth, of, you know, the depths of that little uh, mini bear market or whatever you want to call it, consolidation phase. Um, what are what are some of the the things that, that you found useful with Twitter in terms of just networking and, and kind of building a brand? And um, what what tips would you give to other people that are listening that, that want to kind of build a brand for themselves on Twitter? Because uh, you, you've done a pretty damn good job at it. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, and, and a lot of that is uh, thanks to you, right? Because a lot of the uh, followers that I've, I've uh, gotten over the last few months probably came from retweets uh, from you. So, so as you like to say, right banger tweets, right? And, and you might get uh, some attention. So right banger tweets, that, that would be rule number one of, of wills that I can uh, restate here. But, but honestly, and candidly, I had no intention of building an audience. I had no intention of building a follower base. I just realized when I left uh, you know, my last job that for the first time in my uh, life, this was like June 12th or June 13th, I could say whatever I wanted on social media. And so I think the reason why there's been a lot of momentum, and again, this was not premeditated, it was never my plan for this to happen, uh, was that I have a lot of real world experience, right? So I have worked with a lot of real world billionaires. I've worked with a lot of real world corporates. I've worked with a lot of real world asset managers. 
Uh, I've seen a lot of stuff happen. And, you know, the friends that I have on Twitter that I'm closest with are people I actually talk to on the phone. I'll pick up the phone and I give advice and I take advice and I, we do deals together. I'm investing in a bunch of Bitcoin related companies, you know, like I invested in Swan a couple of months ago and I invested in Bitwise and I've done some other private deals recently that have not been announced that are interesting. And so when you pick up the phone and actually talk to people and you get to know what's going on in the space, you'll have more insight than 99% of people who are just floating around Twitter, uh, waiting for, for people like you or me to tweet out something that is newsworthy or, or insightful. Uh, and so my best advice would be go out in the real world and do real work, right? Because if you do real world work and then you use Twitter too, your Twitter following will go up. Uh, if you go to Twitter hoping to build a following and you don't do real world work, eventually people will see uh, through that. And so, you know, again, kudos to you also for uh, making the decision to, uh, you know, basically go all in, uh, at, you know, at your age and, and and really work in the space. And I think hopefully it's been an incredible ride so far, but I'm certain you're in for a treat because I think we're at the center of the universe, right? Like we're in the most important or one of the most important industries in, in modern human history, and you are right at the center of it. Um, so I got a quick question for you, Will, but before you go also, um, you know, you're, you're 19, you're, as I said, in my tweet, you're one of the smartest, uh, 19 year olds in Bitcoin. You're also one of the coolest guys in Bitcoin. Uh, what advice do you have for people on how to get in to Bitcoin? Like how, how did you get in? how did you break in? What tools do you use? Like, how did you add value? Cause you've, you've blown up in a short period of time as well. Sure. I think first and foremost, when you look when you look at the educational tools we have now versus even two, three years ago, we have so many podcasts, so many YouTube channels, so many people on Twitter. Uh, there, there's just a plethora of different ways you can you can dive in. And I would say, you know, for for newbies, like obviously, you know, look at a lot of these Bitcoin 101 podcasts, you know, like Preston Pish's early episodes on Bitcoin when he's recorded with like Robert Breedlove and Michael Saylor and VJ, you know, VJ's uh, bullish on Bitcoin piece, um, you know, read the white paper, all these basic things. Uh, but then as you go further, um, you know, just kind of find what interests you, like different, different aspects of Bitcoin, um, interest different people, for example, um, I'm like a very literal person. So I gravitate more to like the data side of stuff. And, and I find that uh, very insightful. There's also some people that are, you know, have 10, 15,000 followers on Twitter and all they do is just make memes all day. Right. So it's, it's like, <laughs> find what interests you. Um, and, and, you know, I think once you get orange pilled, like, you'll find a way to contribute to Bitcoin because inadvertently, like even when we're talking about making memes, like no matter what you're doing, you're, you are contributing to the Bitcoin protocol. And, you know, when you look at, as you mentioned, that just the TAM of Bitcoin and where we are now, if you can latch yourself onto this rocket ship in any way, and at least get yourself orbiting around this rocket ship, then as, as Bitcoin appreciates, um, you know, your, your brand or, or um, your following is going to grow as well. I think like, we're entering this age where it's, it's all information. Like, you know, I, I read the sovereign individual a couple months ago and, you know, one of the big things that, that stuck with me is like, and you're seeing this now on Twitter, we have all these like pseudonymous people with like anime characters as their mm -hmm. profile pictures and it doesn't matter. Right. It's just about the content that you put out. Um, no one cares how old you are, what you look like, all that kind of thing. So I would just say, you know, find a niche, find something that really excites you about Bitcoin, because there's so many different aspects of it. Um, and then really just hammer home content and, and uh, you know, figure out a unique way to to present the content. Like when, when I first started, I was doing um, 
I would put out these medium articles and this is back when I had like four or 500 followers. And one night I just said, Hey, I'm just going to write something about Bitcoin. Why not? And so I posted on Twitter and like tagged all these people and, uh, and Preston found it, Preston liked and retweeted it. And I was like, Oh my God, like at the time, this was crazy. Um, and, and that kind of, that gave me a little boost. And then from there, I, I kind of gravitated more towards, um, towards like the, the data side of stuff, um, and got into the whole on-chain thing. And then, um, you know, it, but, but my point I'm trying to make here is I'm going off a little on a tangent, but it's all about the way you present yourself, present the information, especially on Twitter, um, you know, find, find a way that you can basically provide value to other people and, and be a genuine, honest person, right? Like when I don't know what I'm, you know, when I don't know something, I just say, I don't know, or, um, you know, when I'm wrong, just admit when you're wrong. I think like people gravitate towards people that are genuine um, and that are honest. And I think that goes a long way as well, because there's a lot of people in this space that uh, are, are, are a bit shady. So uh, I, th I think that goes a long way as well. But um, in general, yeah, just just trying to, you know, find that niche and, and build your own personal brand. Um, and, and yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the Bitcoin community is kind of like a, a free market of, of information does a good job at, at finding value and content in the space. It's really good advice. Thank you. And I really appreciate you um, inviting me on. I know it's a brand new podcast uh, for you guys at, at Blockware Solutions, and I'm excited to continue to learn more about the company as you guys grow. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Is there uh, anything that you want to get off your chest before we wrap it up? Any, any last comments, words of advice, gems for the, for the audience? I would just say, buy every, uh, you know, take every dollar fiat you have and buy as much Bitcoin as you can. Now, uh, do not wait till 100, 200, 300, 400,000 to, to FOMO and heavier. Uh, if you don't already understand why you should own Bitcoin, do the work. But once you do the work, make sure you own enough Bitcoin. Um, and I would say most people are going to feel like they've never, uh, they never got enough. Um, so uh, don't waste the time right now. We're at 54,221. Uh, right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if we're at 70 or 80, uh, you know, later this fall. And so, uh, you know, you, you should be in the market right now buying Bitcoin if you don't have enough. For sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Mike. This was a blast. I think it actually exceeded my expectations. Um, I'm sure people will get a lot out of this. Do you want to also just plug in your Twitter real quick so people can find you on there? Yeah, I was very blessed. I'm just uh, at Mike Alfred. So just my name at, uh, on Twitter. And, and as I've said before, I engage, I try to engage with everyone there. Although as, as I have more followers now there, uh, I have to uh, protect my time a little bit so I can actually do some original thinking uh, because you know how it is. Twitter's a black hole. If you engage with it uh, too much, you can spend the whole day on it. So I've been working to create some space to, to do other things uh, like working on some new projects, but at Mike Alfred at Twitter, I'd love to engage with people there. All right. Thanks Mike. Take it easy. Thanks, Will. Bye-bye.